hey, could you do me a quick favour wherever you're listening or watching this from? Could you just give it a quick thumbs up, a review, um, a five star? It goes further than you think. And also, apologies for last week. Apologies that there wasn't an episode. It was bank holiday weekend. I had other engagements. Um, the team was super busy, so we couldn't produce a valuable bit of um podcast promotion etc so we couldn't get an episode out but this week's episode is incredible i sit down with andrew block who founded one of the most exciting pr agencies in the country and he also works with lord sugar he's his official spokesperson and he also works with a number of brands as the board of directors and i i really pick his brains about scaling a PR business, scaling a company, but also working with like Lord Sugar and the Apprentice winners. So without further ado, I'm Liam Chick. Tell everybody because this is an incredible episode. Let's dive into episode 10 of The Online Disruptor. So Andrew, thanks very much for coming on the podcast. It's a pleasure to um, have you on. You've got quite an interesting, um, from from like the research I've done, interesting CV, so to speak. You built a PR agency. Um, you're a non-exec. You're um, spokesperson PR advisor for Lord Sugar. Um, you're board advisors for a number of companies. From what I read, you started with a company called Lin, Lin Frank um, in, in about 1995, 25 years ago, something like that. How did that um, come about? What made you want to go into it, down that route? Um, good question to start things off and good research. Well, first of all, thanks for having me on the show. Very excited to be here. Um, so I, I mean, I'd always had my heart set on a career in advertising, actually. It was my art teacher at school had said he thought I'd be good at it. And I'd sort of clung on to that compliment because no one had really told me I'd be good at much. So I thought I'd, I'd go there. And it was hard, like really tough process to apply. And even if you sort of got through the first stage, the second stage, third stage, and I just wanted to work. I would, you know, I'd studied for years and I was ready to graft, basically. Someone said to me, you know, why don't you try PR similar to advertising? So I wrote off to a load of different PR agencies. Um, one of them was Lynn Frank's very, very famous agency of its era. It was actually the agency that Absolutely Fabulous was based on. Um, it was predominantly fashion and entertainment. But the division that I got put into was the sort of brand division. And this was big clients, people like Lloyds Bank, Coca-Cola, Asda, that essentially wanted to become cool. So they sort of took what Lynn Franks knew about fashion and Lynn Franks was created the British Fashion Awards and London Fashion Week and all these kind of cool things they were doing, the BAFTAs. Um, and we'd take a brand like Lloyds or BT and associate them with cool properties and get them out there, help them reach a bigger, younger, cooler audience and... I fell in love with it. Literally from the first day I was there, I couldn't believe it was a job. It was so fast paced and exciting and never a dull moment. And I never really looked back. That sort of advertising dream just faded into the background. And I think now, knowing what I know now, it was exactly the right 
thing for me. I think advertising is an incredible industry, but much slower pace, much more strategic, although obviously there's exceptions, but PR was just much more for me, I think. But I didn't really know that at the time. It's, I think you always need to have a bit of luck. And I was lucky to find PR and lucky to find an agency called Lynn Franks, because obviously not all PR agencies are the same. And, you know, again, I look back and I went, wow, this was the agent. I couldn't have been anywhere better, but I'd be lying to you if I said it was all planned and strategic. It was just you mentioned. Well. Did you mention like your art teacher or someone um, persuaded you to, to go into PR or like why why he said why because I, I remember being at school and yeah not one teacher why? not one would have said to any student go into marketing uh, why why did he say that to you it's funny you say that actually i mean i think that he said it because i was good at art it was my favorite subject at school so he saw i had a creative side potentially also saw I was quite entrepreneurial and so it was for him it was like that mix of business and creative and he was right I mean he saw something in me that I didn't know but when I was at school I went to a very good school and you know it was all about professions becoming an accountant a lawyer a doctor um, and there was no focus on marketing no focus on entrepreneurship and you know that's changed and funnily enough I go back to my school now at least once or twice a year to talk about marketing, to talk about entrepreneurship. Um, we run a sort of Dragon's Den style competition every year um, with, with the students because this is what young people want to do. They're, I mean, I'm not saying they don't want to go into professions. There will always be a demand to be a lawyer or a doctor or an accountant. But actually, I think young people growing up equally now see the appeal of starting their own businesses, doing something on their own, working in something a bit more creative. So my school, which at the time was pretty inadequate in terms of informing people about those sort of career options, now has addressed that. And, you know, a lot of people come out of the school and go on into the creative industries, which is brilliant to see. I didn't have yeah. good fortune. And maybe art teachers are a bit kind of left field and see things through a different eyes to a economics teacher or history teacher yeah i haven't um got the i've spoken about this publicly the greatest opinion on um education schools i feel or certainly when i was at school they they lacked promoting that creative creativity a lot of people now are very creative they love they love art they love all this sort of stuff but schools are very much in my opinion you're a tick they'll push you through the door they'll get rid of you and and you're, you're sort of done i want i was curious um because from my point of view, I only know marketing, PR, all that sort of stuff from the last 10 years. I, I think you started with Lynn Frank actually like a year or two before I was born. Um, what was, <laughs> yeah, <God. laughs> age in that. What was <laughs> PR marketing like back then? Because <laughs> I presume you didn't have like Photoshop and, uh, and all this, this technology then, or, or did you? No, no, no I mean, it's, no, I mean, I sound like a real old fart and I talk to my kids sometimes and they can't believe it. I mean, I think the principles of PR have always been the same. But what's happened is technology has come into play and it's made it quicker, faster, better. You know, when I started, just to give you an idea, I mean, I didn't know how to turn on a computer. I remember on my first day, 
someone sort of said to me, I'll just log in with this and, you know, open this document. I'd never used a computer and I was sort of didn't want to seem an idiot. So I went around from person to person asking them a different question. So I've managed to log on, but it's different. I can't find the button to do this. And then I'd do that, go to someone else and say, I've got into this, but I can't figure out where that. And anyway, so there was no internet. There was no social media. If you had sort of images of a client that you needed to get to the media, it would go out on a transparency on a bike. Um, so, you know, it was a diff- it was a completely different era. But the principles of what makes a great story, how to grab attention, how to get people talking about your brand or your product or your service, that's all remained consistent. And what technology has done is sped it up. And, you know, I always loved the speed. You know, you could be sat brainstorming something and coming up with an idea, pick up the phone to a national newspaper next day it would be in the papers i was like wow this is amazing and i was impatient even then you know i used to the papers used to come out at king's cross station at about 11 o'clock at night and often i couldn't wait till the next morning i'd be hanging around king's cross waiting for the first edition to sort of get to the station nowadays you know we could have an idea now i could tweet it 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 would be public in seconds you know that speed and the and also the ability to target people and get places really quickly you know that's just evolved and made pr even more exciting and more critical you know bad news spreads 10 times faster than good news so that pressure to respond and be quick is is only what what do you think about bad news because i i kind of love it i think if you're doing something a little bit controversial if someone's talking about you in a negative way that 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 is a good impact, surely. Like from a marketing point of view, Look, it all depends. I mean, there's that famous adage, you know, no PR is bad PR, or all PR is good PR, whichever way you want to look at it. It's not always the case. I think probably the biggest skill I've learned over the years is the having the ability not to always need to respond. Sometimes it's better just to keep quiet. Don't fuel the fire. Let something just sort of go off and take its course. And, you know, what was today's news is tomorrow's chip paper. Um, But I do firmly believe that you have to be talked about. You know, it's not difficult to reach people nowadays that, you know, we can, you know, tweet something out. We can get something to millions using databases, using information we've got. Doesn't mean it's going to get read. Doesn't mean it's going to get noticed. Doesn't mean it's going to create a reaction. So, the style of PR that was always my style of PR still is, is creating a reaction and generating what we call it, Frank, talkability, the ability to get people to sit up, take notice and effectively do your best marketing for you. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, right. So you, I'm curious, you said you worked with brands like Lloyds Bank, um, which could be... I guess to a younger generation perceived as quite boring. Obviously, if you need a bank, you go, you set up a bank account. But in terms of like the marketing PR, it could be quite boring. How do you make brands like Lloyd's fun? <laughs> Does that make sense? Like you get boring company. Um, wasn't necessarily about, yeah, of course. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't necessarily about making them fun. It was about generating awareness and making them relevant. So, you know, I think at the time, the campaign I was working on, I remember I'm going back to before you were born. So Lloyds Bank at the time, and still is, you know, massive corporate brand. But we were, we'd 
we put them together with the BAFTA award. So it was the Lloyds Bank BAFTAs and that gave them the ability to hook into entertainment and films and TV, which was an area that their customers were, were interested in. And it was always about, you know, it's, it's very easy to get PR around better interest rates or savings accounts or, but we wanted to take them off the personal finance pages, take them into the front pages, the entertainment pages onto the news and just get the brand seen in a different light. And that was, you know, we did the same with brands like Diet Coke, where they, we created a movie for them, the Diet Coke Movie Awards, which was their own sort of bespoke event. There was brands like Procter & Gamble, who we associated with London Fashion Week, got them involved with catwalk shows and models and the glamour of that. Um, and that was what it was all about, really. But you weren't trying to necessarily make them fun or cool just about making them relevant to an audience in the same way that, you know, MasterCard now are big sponsors of lots of entertainment events, lots of the banks are sponsoring you know, football teams or entertainment properties. It's just a way of getting your brand out there and making it relevant. To a Do you audience. think that works? So like, obviously MasterCard um, uh, sponsors the Champions League, I, I think it is, or, or a competition like that um and you obviously see it and like heineken and all this they sponsor these big channels but does that actually because our our attention span today is very very short um and the chances are if you didn't mention that i wouldn't have remembered that they did sponsor it do you was it different back then do you do you think now our attention shifted do you do you think these sponsors make no it's the same I think our attention has decreased over time and that's to do with the internet. And, you know, I look at my kids, they don't even watch, want to watch TV programs anymore because they don't have the same attention span. They'd rather watch a 10 minute YouTube video um, or be on TikTok. But what it does is it builds credibility, it builds association, it builds awareness. And when it's done properly and it's relevant and it's good, you can use those properties. So if you're, MasterCard and you're sponsoring the Champions League, or you're sponsoring the Brits, gives you access to tickets, to hospitality, gives you things you can talk to your customers about. And it's more interesting than just talking about we're a bank. Sure. Right. So 25. But equally, there's pl plenty of brands that spend a, a lot of money and, you know, don't sweat it properly. You know, there's, that's why PR agencies are in business, sponsorship agencies are in business, because they know how to maximise these deals and they're not cheap deals they're millions and millions of pounds so you have to make them work hard and also for a brand like a mastercard it's international brand so you're sponsoring a champions league you're getting a global audience it's not just about one market it's about hitting lots of markets with something that's relevant there aren't that many properties that have a global appeal so yeah that's why they've gone for that particular property sure. right so 25 26 years ago you obviously you started working for lynn frank and then fast forward, you, you start, am I right in thinking you started your own PR agency? How did you go from there to there? Cause a lot of people who message me are like 16, so they won't have necessarily experience within like the business they're looking to go into, but they obviously, they want to start a business. So what was your sort of journey? Sure. So I'd been at Lim Franks for a couple of years, two, three years, and I was, enjoying it loved it was in a great place having a great time as well it was enjoyable um 
Link Franks then got bought by a big international agency called Ketchum, global PR agency, one of the biggest in the world. And my MD at Link Franks at the time left at, at the time of that deal. I decided I would stay on. I think rather, yeah, at the time I was already like, maybe I want to try somewhere else, see something different. I love it here, but maybe I'd learn quicker by making a move. And actually what happened with that acquisition was it just meant that I could try something new, but it wasn't like leaving my job. So I was doing that and working on bigger clients, global clients, looking after sort of Carlsberg and their sponsorship of England football team in Liverpool. I was looking after Puma and all of their various different sports people, musicians, that kind of thing. Um, I was working on Mini and Rover and MG, so car brands. I had great clients. Um, but the MD that left, Lynn Franks, came to me and he'd gone into the internet. It was 2000, time of the sort of dot-com boom. Basically didn't like it, missed PR. And he was like, why don't we do something together? And I was 26. My gut reaction was like, I just don't feel ready to do this. Love it. I can think of no one who I'd rather do it with. He was, and still is, incredibly talented and brilliant. But have I really got enough experience? And he, he said to me, and I will never forget this, like, you'll never feel ready. Um, and he was right. And I just sort of went through that thought process of almost in a bit of a negative way, like, what's the worst thing that can happen? The worst thing is it doesn't work out. And I'll go groveling back to my old employer who didn't want to lose me or I'll be well qualified to go somewhere else. So I gave it a shot and never really had any dreams or aspirations of what it would go on or what I wanted it to go on to become. I just, I guess I just didn't want it to fail. Um, and, you know, 21 odd years later, 22 years later, it's one of the most successful agencies in the country has done some incredible work and I could never have dreamt that at the time. But yeah, it was, it did feel like did, a big move. Did Yeah. Scary. Did, did you have like, cause I remember when I started, I, I didn't bother with business plans cause I've always found that plans never really go to plan anyway. You can have like a vision of where you want to go, but it'll never truly be like that. Did you, did you have any business plan? Did you, did you do anything like that or? We did, yeah. I mean, it was more, we did have plans, but it was much more sort of driven by targets. We knew how big we wanted to be. Um, and what we did was, the, there's the industry sort of Bible for PR is PR Week. Every year they publish a table of the top 150 agencies in the country, which shows their fee income, their staff, their growth. So we looked at the best performing agency of its time, the one that you know we admired and would like to be. And we looked at where they were at year one and we were like, okay, that's our target. You know, they were at X hundred thousand or whatever it was. That's where we want to be. And we tracked them and we tracked them until the point where we overtook them. And I think that took us maybe, they'd been going for about seven years. We got to where they'd got to within about three, three and a half years. And then we looked at the next sort of bigger, better performing agency. And we're like, okay, we're going to go after them. And we did that. And once we reached them and got to that level, took the next one. And it was like an ongoing, but that was sort of, I always feel like you need to have a target. You need to know what you're trying to achieve. Otherwise, you can't measure success. Um, like 
it's all very well to come to the end of the year and say, yeah, it's a good year. But was it? You know, what did you set out to do? And the only way to figure out what is good and what's not is to benchmark it against someone else or what you've done previously. In terms of an actual sort of business plan, I mean, we kind of did. Uh, I might be doing ourselves a disservice to say we didn't, but I don't remember it being super formal and rigid. And But we had an idea of how we wanted to go out there, which clients we wanted to target, what we needed to do in terms of marketing in order to attract those clients, how much money we wanted to make, how much we could afford to spend on staff, what we wanted our margins to be to be profitable. So that was always... Right sure. from I remember when I started mine, I, I was like, I was on my own. I was sole trader in a garage um, in a little village in Devon. I had like no money. I had like no clients. I'd worked for a marketing marketing agency for two weeks. So it wasn't, um, I didn't really have the experience. You, you obviously went in with the experience. Did you go in with like, with money? Did you go in, get staff straight away? How quickly did it take to land like clients? What was the growth like from there? We had an investor to begin with. So one of the sort of prompts for starting up this agency is my my partner, Graham, had an internet agency, as I mentioned. He was working with a marketing director, a guy called Philip Lay, who was an absolute genius, still is an absolute genius. He was the marketing director of Sky, he was the marketing director of Sega. And then he set up a business called Branded, which basically helped businesses with their marketing as part of doing that, he would recommend them an ad agency, a media agency, a PR agency. And he said to Graham, really tough to recommend a good PR agency. I I don't know who to recommend without sort of getting egg on my face and it being a poor recommendation. So what if we were to set up a PR agency and I'll put clients your way? Um, So we did that and they were, uh, they took a stake in the business. So from day one, we were able, we didn't have a huge amount of staff. I'd brought someone on alongside me. Graham initially was sort of, I'm not going to be hands-on. I'm going to be sort of chairman and you run it. And I was like, okay, if I'm going to run it, I want to do it with someone else. So I brought on um, a fantastic girl called Nadia, who I used to work with at Ketchum. And there was the three of us. We had a PA, which with hindsight was probably a bit unnecessary, but it was sort of what you did at the time. And then we started recruiting relatively quickly and we were successful. And within about six months, we were already beginning to resent that investment. So hang on a sec. We don't really need their money. We're funding ourselves already. They've got quite a big stake in the business. They've introduced us to everyone they can possibly introduce us to. Where's the value? It wasn't their fault. I mean, you know, but this is what can sometimes happen. And We were very fortunate, actually, Um, again, showing my age, but they had an opportunity to be bought themselves. And the people that were buying them looked at their business, saw that they own this crappy little PR agency that was making five pence and said, we're not interested in them. So it makes the deal a bit complicated. Just get rid of them. So we had the opportunity to buy ourselves out, which we did. So we took that their stake and had 100% of the business ourselves. And then actually, as time sort of will tell, what happened was 9-11 happened, the whole market completely crashed, their deal fell through. But by that point, we'd already exited it. And it was a real blessing because 
when we came on to sell our business, you know, seven or eight years later, it made an unbelievable difference to what we received as entrepreneurs versus what we would have done had we've had these external shareholders. But, you know, the thing with PR is you don't need a lot of money to set up. There aren't really many barriers to entry, which is why you have so many, we have thousands and thousands of sole traders, one and two and three man band companies, because really, what do you need? You need a laptop and a phone. Um, and that's it. Nowadays, you don't even need an office. Although arguably, you never have. But um, So, you know, I'd always say to anyone who's thinking about getting investment, do you need money? Like, and if you don't, don't take it. Much better not to take it. And what is the best way of getting that money? Is it getting investment from a strategic investor that can help you and help you grow through their network and their knowledge? Are you best to take a bank loan? Are you better to go to the bank of mum and dad if you're privileged enough that they can lend you five grand to get up and running or whatever it is you might need just for the first month or so? Um, but yeah, you don't, you generally, you don't really need a lot of money to set up as a PR consultant or a PR agency. Is, at the moment, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of people starting marketing agencies, PR agencies. Um, I, I think it's almost become like a, a hobbyist. Like it's sort of, it's cool to say that you do it. And like, I'll admit we haven't got like the biggest agency. There's, there's 10 of us here. Like we're a smaller agency, but, um, what do you think the difference I'm curious between, cause you obviously grew something incredible to a big size, big clients, all this sort of stuff. In, in six months, what do you think the difference to your success as opposed to that one man band trying to to make it sort of thing in, in the garage? Why do you think you, you managed to do it in six months and it could take them like years? I mean, for a start, we didn't do it in six months. You know, we were up and standing and profitable within six months, but it took years and years to build our reputation and our brand. If I was going to say what it was, to simplify it, I would say great work. You know, if you do great work, everything follows. You win more clients, you attract the best staff, you make more money. Um, so we always had a real focus on brilliant creative work. We knew what we standed for, what we stood for. There's thousands of agencies. We wanted to narrow it down and have a USP, which is quite hard in the marketing world, but for us, that was all around creating talkability, which, as I said, you know, that buzz that takes over and does your best marketing for you. And then just a relentless focus on doing good work. And we put a lot of energy into building our brand and our reputation because, I mean, nowadays it's the very fashionable thing to talk about personal branding. It's like the buzzword, but that didn't really exist as a thing 20 years ago. We just knew that didn't particularly want to pick up the phone and make cold calls or send LinkedIn email requests and stuff. Yeah, we wanted the phone to ring with people wanting to work for us. So we put a lot of focus and attention in building Frank as a brand that was cool, that was doing great work, that people wanted to work for. And that strategy has remained true right until this very moment in that yeah, we have an incredible amount of new business coming into us without us having to go out and sell ourselves. And if someone comes to you, they've already decided they like you. It's much easier to close the deal. So that was always our focus. And I think that's what stood us apart. And 
you know, one of the great testaments to Frank is, you know, obviously hundreds of agencies have been and gone during that period. And, you know, the management team up until this day have been able to ensure that Frank stayed relevant and stayed cool and was on the pitch lists of the biggest and best clients. Um, and that's because you have to constantly evolve. And you, have, you, you know, you, you're only really as good as your last campaign. You can't hark back to, oh, in 2006, we did this campaign. No one cares. You know, it's about what did you do last week? What did you do last month? What are you doing tomorrow? And that was what used to keep me up at night. You know, it was always that. It was never anything else. It's what's our next great campaign that's going to make everyone think, wow, these guys are good at Let's talk about personal branding then it's the big thing at the moment right and i'll never i'll never forget this like when i started my podcast i think two episodes in i got a message going i love your honesty i'd love to work with you sort of thing you and your agency and like i've never really had that before and then i started like focusing on the podcast putting video content out all this sort of stuff and i noticed people more engaged in almost me than than the agency like instagram twitter facebook page what are your thoughts on personal branding it's obviously something you're you're very focused on at the moment well it's something that i've always done just naturally without knowing that it was personal branding you know my view was that as the sort of figurehead for Frank, and it's no longer me because I'm non-executive and Frank is bigger than any one person and always has been. But that was my way of saying, hey, we've just done this. And in other words, you want someone to look at it and think, oh, they could do that for us. Um, I was always an early advocate of Twitter and saw it as a fantastic way to connect with other people, to showcase what you're doing. LinkedIn also came pretty naturally to me. Everyone's got their own style of doing it. You know, you see some fantastic entrepreneurs that have great personal brands, but I could never replicate that because it's not my personality. It's not my way of doing it. I just did it in my own way to use that sort of much overused word authentically. Um, And it does work. Where it doesn't work is where people just sort of talking for the sake of it and, um, you know, just kind of not making an impact and fitting, you know, there's a lot of noise out there. So if you don't do something that's going to stand out, it's not going to get noticed. You have to do it in your own style, in your own way. And it's very easy to reach lots of people now just with the click of a button. But it doesn't mean that you have to communicate, you know, nine o'clock, three o'clock and six o'clock every day or every Monday, Wednesday, Friday or you know, you just, when I've got something to say, I'll say it. And if I haven't, I haven't. And I can go a week without posting anything anywhere. And then other days, you know, I might post four or five things in one day. But it's always, it's worked for me always as a new business tool. But I also love sharing great work. So it's not just about what what I'm doing. It's about, you know, interesting things that I see from other people or sometimes you don't even know the source but adding value i think you know to be a strong personal brand you have to add value so i do that through hopefully sharing either stuff that's informative or amusing or creatively inspiring and i think that's why i have you know a semi-decent following you know otherwise people wouldn't bother no one wants to hear people just selling 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 yeah definitely and um 
like <clears throat> I'm very conscious of like the the longer it takes to post like over a period of, of time the engagement rates go down I I try and post something that either I do in the business or or like something I see every day but I have noticed and it's weird you say that because when I'm like oh shit I've got to post something right now like it's that time I've got to post something so I I scroll for my inspiration I'm like right that'll do and I post it and it it doesn't do well at all. And I'm like, Oh, well that was pointless. And then I noticed when I, when I actually care about yeah. something, it's like, it gets really, really good engagement rate. So I've like, I never really thought about that before. And then you've obviously got a lot of fake entrepreneurs, haven't you? I don't know how, how often you come across them on, on Instagram where they're posting this lavish lifestyle, this fake life. They look perfect. And people like that just, just annoy me. I don't know if you've had any experience with that, but I'm all about authenticity, posting the hard. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, look, different things appeal to different people. So there are especially young, impressionable people that will see someone, you know, driving a Ferrari, wearing, you know, a Rolex, and that to them is what they're striving to achieve and they buy into it. Um, you know, it's not my style, even if I did drive a Ferrari, which I don't, by the way. You know, I wouldn't be posting. I, I don't post anything particularly personal, you know, especially on Twitter and LinkedIn. Instagram, for me, is a bit of a blend. And if you really scrolled through every single picture, you could build up a bit of a picture of my life. But it is my life. I'm not trying to show off or pretend to be something I'm not. But there's an audience for everything. You know, it's the same as when you go to big sort of speaking conferences and I see a lot of you know the work I do with Lord Sugar you know I see a lot of young people sort of come in and they kind of expecting in an hour to be entrepreneurs just by listening to what he's got to say and hopefully you know over the course of an hour he will inspire them and teach them something but he's not going to turn someone in, into an entrepreneur in an hour you know he, he famously sort of says you can't go into boots and buy a bottle of entrepreneur juice you can't. Um, but if you've got it in your DNA, which I think I have, which you clearly do, you will be constantly learning, soaking up information, wanting to strive to better yourself, to challenge yourself. And therefore, you know, you're open to messages from people that can help. I mean, I just, you know, the beauty of social media is you don't have to see things you don't want to see. So if I think someone is full of shit and their posts irritate me or annoy me. I just don't unfollow them. I mean, it's, you know, there's someone else will be incredibly inspired by them and will learn from them, but it's not for me. So you've got to find who your audience is. And, you know, in my opinion, you've got to be yourself. You know, you can't trying to be someone else. You're going to get exposed at some stage. People can see through it straight away. So I've never, ever had anyone sort of write anything on my behalf or post anything on my behalf. It's for good or bad. What you see is... The reason I do this podcast, actually, like you asked me this question, I, I obviously explained the audience, but I think the truth is I always think back to when I was like that 17-year-old kid and what sort of stuff would I want to listen to? But also, like, I think I'm entrepreneurial. I'm definitely, I'm, I'm a long way off, like, making it, like, I've got a longer journey to go, of course, but I'm very interested in, like, learning. Like, there's something really interesting about the human psychology side of yeah. things. Like, you're interesting. I've spoken to footballers. Like, what makes them 
put in the work and all that sort of stuff. What do you think makes an entrepreneur? Are they born or are they made? <laughs> oh, I, I, I think they're born, personally. I think you have it in you to... I mean, I would never used to call myself an entrepreneur. I didn't think what I was doing was massively entrepreneurial. My dad was an entrepreneur, not in marketing, but in sort of a sales type role. And from the first day I started at Lynn Franks, he used to say to me, you're wasting your time working from someone else. Don't make anyone else rich. Do it for yourself. I never used to really get it. Um, but then when I started my own agency, I just sort of got the buzz. And actually, one of the big reasons why I decided to step back and go non-exec was I just felt I was dealing with all these amazing business owners and they just inspired me. And I had so many opportunities, which I either couldn't do because I was doing a full-time job contractually I wasn't allowed to do, or from a time capacity, I just didn't have the time to do it. Um, and I always preferred working with startups and entrepreneurs than I did, you know, as amazing as it was to have a Coca-Cola or a Unilever or something on your CV and these incredible brands that, you know, are household names. And the people that I would work with, they were classically trained marketers, incredibly intelligent, but they just didn't work at the pace that I worked at. They didn't have the same commercial sort of thinking that I had. And actually, there was another guy in the business who was superb with them, was, had the patience, loved working with them. I was always better with the fast-growth startups that just received a load of funding, didn't know where, what to do with it, had to be at a certain stage. And that was my buzz. And so now I have the opportunity to work with loads of these types of people. Um, and I just think if you're not an entrepreneur, you're not an entrepreneur. You know, my brother's got an extremely successful career also in marketing, but, you know, we've talked at times whether we should do something together. It's just not in his DNA. Um, certain people would rather have the security of working for a big company, being part of the, the journey of being in a big company. Nothing wrong with that at all. Not everyone could be entrepreneurs. Um, but you said it, and I think it's, a, it's really refreshing. You know, being an entrepreneur is not a shortcut to becoming a millionaire. You know, you still have to put in the graft and the work and it's it's easy to look on Instagram or to see a TikTok video of, you know, I made a billion in my first week. It's bullshit. You know, you, to, to do well, you have to work hard, put in the grind. It's not an overnight thing. You know, the equivalent when I was starting out in my career was Big Brother was like the hot TV show and it made people sort of think, oh, I could go on TV and be famous overnight with no discernible talent, just like a quirky personality. And and that's, you know, there's loads of people that just wanted to be famous for the sake of being famous. And I think same with, with entrepreneurs, you know, you do it because you want to do it. You want to go on the journey. And yes, if you're successful, you will reap the benefits, but there's no shortcuts. It's, you know, you can learn as fast as you want, but you have to put in time. It took me years and years to... When I started out, you know, I was earning less than all of my mates by a considerable amount. But in my mind, I was investing in my future. I had enough to live, just about nothing else. But I wasn't jealous of them earning double the amount because they were working for a bank or an estate agent. And it was incredibly boring. And they might have more money than me, but I was the one hanging out with the England football team and Kate Moss and all of these kind of cool 
cool things and that meant more to me plus i was in a career that i absolutely loved and yeah that is a blessing I think sometimes it takes people a long time to find what their career is what they're going to be good at what they're going to enjoy i was just lucky that it just happened for me and i remember saying to a lot of my friends at the time like, i love work absolutely love it and they just didn't really believe me they were like what you know for them work was something you did nine to five to earn money to enjoy it the weekends and in the evening for me it was my life i made amazing friends there that are still friends today networked with people that i'm still you know in touch with and do business with today it was like such a great foundation and that hasn't changed for the years that i've been doing it i still have great friends great contacts because everyone's kind of evolved through the industry together and risen through the ranks and achieved sort of their own sort of versions of success. talk about this about hard work in a minute but i wanted to ask you about this uh, someone came on my podcast i think about six episodes ago and i'll never forget this quote ever and I resonate with it. He said, most successful people have daddy issues. And like, do do you get what I'm saying? So he's like, most successful people have, um, have some sort of trauma in, in like their past life that makes them want to prove people wrong almost and, and push to succeed. Did you agree with that? No, I don't think I do. It's my gut reaction. I mean, my dad was still is retired now, but extremely hardworking, amazing work ethic, very entrepreneurial. A hundred percent, you know, he has been a major inspiration to me and my mum to a lesser degree. My mum was a housewife, but she had her own sort of side hustle, if you like, is what you call it today. Um, and always wanted to just, you know, it wasn't necessarily that she needed the money. She wanted to have a, something that she could have her own income. And I found that inspirational. I don't think I had any trauma. Um, no, I mean, I, I don't feel like I have to prove myself to anyone. I, I set my own goals and my own challenges. Often I think I'm way too hard on myself. You know, like I could... You know, like this year is going very well. I've had a great sort of four months of the year so far. I could probably take my foot off the pedal and I'd do better than last year. And but I don't want to. I mean, I want to keep pushing myself and learning and bettering myself. And but it's not to prove. I've got no one to prove myself to. My dad is always saying to me, "Take it easy." You know, life's too short. Just you know, I, I definitely veer on being a workaholic. Um, you know, I've had lots of relationships that I've effed up from putting that before my work, before them, which I sort of would like to think I've learned from, but I don't think I'm perfect by any means. You know, when I went out on my own, I was very conscious. Big reason for doing that is because I'm divorced now. And that was one of the triggers for sort of going alone is that it gave me some bravery that I perhaps didn't have it's quite a hard thing to step back from the agency that you founded and is all going very well to go into the unknown but getting divorced was a bit of a trigger it wasn't but i'm not doing it to prove myself to my ex-wife it was irrelevant it's i'm doing it because i just i think i always feel it's the wrong thing to say to say i was bored doing what i was doing because you never get running an agency is relentless as you know but i felt like 
I could probably do it with my eyes closed. So I wanted to challenge myself and push myself. But yeah, it wasn't, I didn't have daddy issues. It's, I, I am my own harshest critic. The only person I have to prove myself to is myself. Um, I actually think it's a real distraction to, you, you, there's always someone bigger and more successful and making more money. And it's just not a healthy thing to do. You know, you can reach, I don't know, Elon Musk status and, you know, he's looking at, you know, the guy from Amazon and thinking, oh, I should be doing, you know, how many yachts, boats, homes, millions, billions in the bank. There's always someone that's done better. It is natural to sort of compare a little bit because I think it gives you a benchmark, but not to try and prove yourself to them. It is my opinion, but... I guess it's different and I can see how having daddy issues, so to speak, could be a motivator for some people. Sure. But it's I not wanted, me. You mentioned just then that you've had many effed up relationships. That resonates with me quite well because a week or two ago, same same <laughs> thing happened to me. I was seeing this person and I think she turned around to me and she just sort of said, you're always so busy you're always working why can't you make time and like i never said it to her uh, the truth is probably sometimes i could have made done things better but i was so like focused on my work i, I love it so much like i genuinely love my work it's like the best thing in the world and i was like it sounds so harsh but i'd rather be there like yeah i get that i get that look i'm you're speaking to the world's least qualified person in this area. But it, you, it's a balance. I think I've always loved what I do. So, you know, if I was sitting here tonight at 7 o'clock, 8 o'clock, finishing off work, I'm not resenting it. I'm just getting things done because I want to get it done so tomorrow I can start fresh. It's a balance. I think you have to find someone that respects and admires who you are and what you're building. Um, Otherwise, it's never going to work. And then, you know, you know, you need to know how to set your own boundaries and not make them feel like they're second class citizen to, to your work. But, yeah, undoubtedly, I made sacrifices over the years. Undoubtedly, it's had an impact on various relationships over the years. Would I sort of do anything differently or better? I'd, I'd love to say yes. I don't know if I would, because it is who I am. As I'm getting slightly older, my priorities have changed a bit and I still work extremely hard, but I take off two afternoons a week to spend with my kids. Um, I try and target 20% of my time to help Prince's Trust and various other different charities, um, not-for-profit organisations that I'm involved with. So I... I've shifted how I do it. But I also, you know, if I'm with my son all afternoon, that doesn't mean when he's gone to bed, I'm not on my laptop at 10 at night sort of making up for lost time. It's just trying to make sure that you don't look back and think, I wish I spent more time with my kid, wish I went on holiday more, wish I invested more in my girlfriend. You know, I, I never want to have any regrets. But it is always a juggling thing. You know, as I said to you earlier, I don't believe you can be successful without hard graft. The, the two to me go hand in hand you've got to work smart you can work hard and waste your time but you've got to work smart to achieve that success and with that 
there are sacrifices. So just you just got to ensure that they're not. You know, if you meet someone you really really like and they're the one for you, you've got to find the balance that keeps them happy as well as you happy. You're never going to stay with someone that has no respect for your job, doesn't care why you're doing it, because that's your that's your love. You know they they should they don't necessarily need to understand it, but they need to respect it and see that it makes you happy and shouldn't resent you for it. And you should you know you're in a lot of ways, I feel like, you know, your top priority should be yourself. But that doesn't mean you don't respect other people. You've got to find that happy. Yeah, I think, and I'm 23 as well, so I'm going to go through a lot more probably of these. I'm trying to find that that balance, you know, and, and it's hard at the moment. I'm just, I'm <laughs> loving it. I'm meeting new people. I'm speaking to cool people. Um, One thing I wanted, the final thing on, like, business and stuff I wanted to ask you before we move on to what I'm sure a lot of people are wanting to hear about. And that's like Lord Sugar, the apprentice, that sort of stuff. There's this, it's almost a trend at the moment. It's very much a fashion trend of burnout. And like, you should be working almost 24 hour days. You should be like 6am to midnight. And I'm, I'm not going to lie through, through the first year of like my business. I was, I was up at 6am. I was working to like 1am five, four, five hours sleep. Um, I never truly burnt out because I loved it, but a lot of people believe that that's how they should be working. What, what do you think about that? I think you know, it's the sort of myth that's perpetuated on LinkedIn and it's, it's about working smart. And actually the key to it is time management. And I think the key to being a good entrepreneur, especially when you're running an agency, is knowing how to manage your time. And for me, that's about distinguishing between what's urgent and what's important. And, yeah, we get hit by urgent things all day long. I need this in five minutes. I need that by tomorrow. Could you just answer this call? Could you do that? Can I spend all urgent? The important things are the things that perhaps aren't urgent. Sometimes they're urgent and important, but more often than not, they're the things that will make a difference fundamentally to you and your business. But they're probably a bit harder to do. They require a bit more thought, a bit more headspace. To You've got to make sure you get that balance right so you're doing the important as well as the urgent. And, you know, look, I work long hours, but you wouldn't catch me at, you know, unless it's something except, exceptional. But, you know, you've got to have your space. You've got to have your own time. Um, but the ability to understand how you work, when you perform best, when you're at your optimum, knowing the difference between urgency and importance, that helps you take control and it helps you alleviate any feelings of stress or not coping. Um, and to me, that's the difference between a sort of good entrepreneur and a great entrepreneur. Um, I mean, we do talk about burnout a lot and I think it's tougher now in an age of being always on, having, you know, emails on your phone. I mean, I get messaged by like anything you can think of, you know, WhatsApp, Instagram, TikTok, phone calls, texts, emails, you know, somebody, you just got to know when to shut off sometimes. And especially with working from home, I think it's brought about lots and lots of advantages. But it's also, I think, people's boundaries have changed. Everyone's working, you know, you've got working mums that might not work between three and seven. But then the kid goes to bed and they're on their laptop. You've got 
people that might want to play golf all morning and then they have to work at the weekend. But just because they're working like that, you don't have to feel the need to respond immediately. You've got to figure out what's what's right for you. And, you know, you don't want to burn out. But at the same time, you shouldn't be scared of hard work. You know, and I do think some people are a little bit scared of hard work. You've got to work as hard as you need to work or want to work to achieve what, what you want to achieve. And to do that, you've got to understand yourself and you've got to understand the boundaries. And everyone needs time off. And, you know, especially when you're young, I, I think, yes, being young is the best time to work hard. You've got the biggest energy. The sooner you achieve success, the more you set yourself up for future life. But at the same time, you're young. You know, you want to go out. You want to get pissed every now and again and have a hangover. You know, you're not, life shouldn't be work. It's, it is about, I don't necessarily believe in work-life balance. I believe in just blending work and life so it works for you. And for everyone, it's going to be different. So, you know, for me, certain days of the week, like a Monday, I'm not bothered if I work till 10 o'clock tonight, but tomorrow is a night where I'm seeing my mates. So come six o'clock, computer off, and it can wait till Wednesday morning. And yeah, you've got to find a routine that works for you and not make too many sacrifices and enjoy it. Because if you don't enjoy it, it gets to the point where it's unenjoyable. You're not going to achieve the best that awesome. you can achieve. Right. So you are Lord Shibba's PR advisor. You're his spokesperson. That's quite, that's quite an impressive gig. Um, f- first and foremost, I think the big question is how? <laughs> how did that even come about? <laughs> how? Came about, so if you remember, we were talking about the investor in Frank um, in the early days, and they introduced us to yeah, Amstrad, yeah. which was his business at the time. And they had a product launch. Um, there was a guy called Nick Hewer who did um, Alan Sugar's PR for years and years and years. He was an advisor on The Apprentice. He retired, I think, in about 98, 99 They'd employed another PR agency to do the launch of this product. Hadn't worked out. So we got an introduction. Um, and cutting a long story short, sort of we won the business. Um, I wasn't involved in Alan, with Alan Sugar. It was sort of, he, he sort of had quite a scary reputation at the time. And I just sort of, in my mind, there was no need to be matey with the CEO. I was quite happy dealing with the marketing director and the marketing manager. But inevitably what happened over time at product launches, at events. You know, he was the face of the company and he would be there. And we just got to know each other sort of slowly. And when you do someone's personal PR, um, there's a lot of trust involved. You know, you know lots of stuff. You have to get used to them as a person. You have to align in terms of the ways you work. Um, and it just built and built and, you know, has continued to this day. Um but that was that was how it started. It probably took a good couple of years to sort of win his trust. And then, of course, The Apprentice started in 2005. And his profile, he was already very, very well known as a business person, but it took him to mass market when he was a household name. Tim Campbell. Almost what? overnight. Is that the first one? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Yes, that was the first. There's this um, persona, is, isn't there? And I, I don't know where it comes from, um, whether that's like through telly or through like his opinions or a tweet or his tweets that he's a bit, he's scary, he's a bit of a twat, he's he's outspoken, 
What's he actually like? I, I imagine he's a really nice guy. What you see is what you get. So he's very direct, very, very smart, doesn't miss a trick, incredibly sharp, brilliant attention to detail. Um, probably the bits you don't see so much are got a brilliant sense of humour, extremely loyal to everyone around him in his sort of inner circle, employees, family, friends. Um very trustworthy, loads of integrity, um, very generous. So I think you sort of see on The Apprentice sort of one bit of him, which is accurate. It's a it's a slight caricature because it's a TV show, but it is him. Um, you know, you don't want to get on the wrong side of him. You don't want to bullshit him. You don't want to kind of do anything wrong. But you probably don't see that sort of warmer, more generous, more loyal side to him and it is, and I'm not sure yeah he's incredibly sharp and astute you know, he can take a business and grasp it in seconds I'm not sure you see that necessarily on the show um, and he doesn't suffer fools and they stick up for himself and yes he's opinionated and they fight back and you know he's not a wallflower so but it's, you know, look, we've worked together for years and years and years so um, I think you know I understand him pretty well and He's big, he's big. He gets a lot of backlash, doesn't he? Do, do you reckon that's because he's very opinionated? Would Would you advise people being opinion because he's almost a little bit like not as extreme, a bit like Piers Morgan as well, who is also very opinionated. Two people who who I think are very who rank highly. Uh, I think they're quite inspiring due to to having the option to speak their thoughts. What do you think? Do, would you agree with that? I think they've both built careers on having opinions. And to me, the most boring thing in the world is not to have an opinion. Um, I guess it's another thing whether you want to voice that opinion in public. And for me personally, if I haven't got something nice to say, I don't say it. You know, as my mum always sort of said to me, if you haven't got anything nice, don't say it at all. And I've always sort of maintained that. But I think when you've got a Piers Morgan or a Lord Sugar, you know, they've, they've got an opinion and they're not afraid to stick up for it. And they're not afraid to be criticised by it. And I think that's what makes them interesting. I think the world is full of <laughs> sit-on-the-fence wallflowers. And, you know, what you have to remember is in this social media generation, there's very little opinions you can have without offending someone. You can say the sky is blue. And be someone that will be replying on Twitter saying, no, mate, it's green. You know, that is just the world we live in. And from a PR perspective, that one person saying the sky is green will end up in the Daily Mail tomorrow. You know, Lord Sugar in, you know, argument with Joe Bloggs over colour of the sky. That makes a news article. And that's, yeah, that makes my job a little bit harder. But I'd never try and control him or tell him what to say or when to say it. That is who he is. And you've got to look at, you know, he's got five and a half million followers. Piers Morgan's, I think, you know, nine million-ish followers, people like it. They like to hear their opinions. And, you know, that we're in a snowflake society, so they know that they're going to offend or upset and things will get misinterpreted. Um, but they don't really care because that's who they are. You know, they're good mates. And that's... Do you like it? Two sides of the same coin. 
Um, and there aren't many. Do, do you like do. it when they say something controversial? Are you like, oh yes, this is good PR now. We're, we're going to be talked about here. No, no, I don't really think about it. To be honest, you know, I think the thing when you represent someone at that level, I'm not trying to generate PR for him proactively. I think you know one of the things he taught me actually is to only do PR when you've got something to sell and there's an end result at the end of it. So, you know, for example, when, you know, people used to win The Apprentice um, and we didn't have a business ready. You know, we knew they'd won it. We knew there'd be an investment, but it would take sort of three months of hard graft to get the business in shape. And I would, you know, the show would finish, I don't know, whoever, Tom Pellerow or someone would win the show, but we hadn't set up the business and I'd have hundreds of media inquiries. Can we interview Tom? Can we interview Tom? And he was the one that taught me like, well, no, just say no. And let's hold back, wait till we've got his product ready, his company ready, then we'll do interviews. And that's a really valuable lesson. You know, there's plenty of people that do PR for the sake of doing PR. If there isn't a call to action, something for someone to go and buy, something to click on, something to do, then what's the point? And so he'll never do interviews unless it's promoting something that he's involved with um, or something that he's extremely passionate about. So it might be something to do with politics or Brexit. Or, um, but generally speaking, you won't catch him doing like a puff piece, just a profile with no sort of, watch The Apprentice at nine o'clock on BBC One at the end of it or something like that. So um, so no, when he does something, I sometimes like, oh God, I thought I was going to have a quiet day and now I'm going to get bugged. But again, you know, I've learned from working with him and others, you don't always need to respond. So if the media are saying, oh, we saw there's a big argument on Twitter between Lord Sugar and a hedgehog, what have you got to say? Often it's better just to say nothing. Let them run the story. Don't put your comment in. By the next day, it's forgotten about. If I give them a quote, it elevates the story. It makes it bigger in the paper. Then they go back to someone else, ask their opinion. And you've know, you just got to learn when to keep your gob shut sometimes and be quiet. And he, he's taught me that because it takes a strong character to resist the urge. It's a bit like if you have an argument with someone, you, 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 you're always going to don't want to be that person. It's always. And another thing, and I told you that, and, and sometimes you just let it go let them get the argument out, take a bit of a punch on the chin and then get up and start again. So, but it's hard to do that. There's always this tendency to want to argue back and get your point across. Yeah. And you, you obviously deal, I think I read, correct me if I'm wrong, you, you now manage the PA, PR for the, um, the Apprentice winners. Um, on The Apprentice, obviously it's a TV show. Yeah. Uh, the producers are going to want to pick out like the juicy bits, the bits where the candidates necessarily look shit in, in different tasks. It, it, does Lord Sugar have any say? Do you know in that? Because obviously, do, do you get what I mean? It looks a bit fixed sometimes, doesn't it? It's not fixed. It's... Yeah, it's a, it's a factual entertainment show and it's designed to be entertaining. What happens, happens. What you have to remember is that show is filmed over an intense period of time. The candidates are under massive, massive pressure. They've got sleep deprivation. 
they're, you know, they're being asked to make lots of decisions very quickly. It's very easy to watch it as a viewer and think, oh, you morons, I could do that, I could do that. I guarantee if you put some of the best business people in the country into that apprentice environment, they would not fare much better than some of these candidates. Of course, you get the odd idiot, get the odd kind of, oh, my God, what a fool. But generally, it's just a sort of an output of the fact that, you know, they're under pressure. And, of course, the show is edited. So, you know, an hour-long show has probably taken 25, 30 hours worth of filming. So, of course, they're going to cut it into the most entertaining bits, which will be the bad bits, the funny bits, the really good bits. They're not going to show you the sort of mundane, boring stuff, which sometimes, you know... I always find that every year the media will say another bunch of 16 idiots. But, you know, you've only got to look at the businesses that have won that show, the people that have risen to the top and the success that they've achieved. That's the whole purpose of the show. You're trying to whittle down 16 candidates to one eventual winner. And ultimately, as long as that winner is strong, it doesn't really matter. What What actually happens after The Apprentice then? Um, You you obviously win 250 grand. Is that Lord Sugar bank transfer it to, to the business account and that's it. It's all, it's all over. They, they crack on and he, he gets you to sort of deal with them. No, no. No, no. It's very, very involved. So the £250,000 is an investment into a stake in the business. But then, you know, him and his team, of which I'm an extension to that, will work on developing the business plan and advising and mentoring and you know, the thing about him is he's, he's on it. I mean, you know, and he's a great testament. If you love what you do, you continue doing it. He's 75 years old. I promise you I could email him now. He'd reply within five minutes. doesn't matter what time of the day, night, day of the week, because he loves it. So he's really, really involved. Of course, he's got, you know, an accounts team, a legal team, a team of people that look at trademarks and stuff like that. You know, he's got me helping with, the PR side of things, but no, he's incredibly involved, obviously involved in board meetings, but generally, you know, where his strength is, is he'll see a business and he'll look at it from all the different angles of how you can scale it and grow it. So with Harper, you know, already, you know, we've, she had two shops. We've already transformed that into an online distribution business. You can order oh so young sort of cakes and have them delivered. We're now working on an expansion plan to for, for new stores. And, you know, he was the one that sort of could see how you could take something of a certain size and scale it up. Um, so, no, he's, he's very, very involved. He's got an incredible eye for detail, incredible memory, and he's on it. Yeah, he's on the detail. Harpreet, this, um, this Harpreet winning the deal caused a bit of um, I, maybe controversy controversial i read in like the newspaper because obviously her sister was involved um her sister shared it as well how did that yeah that's an interesting one how did that actually work because he's going into business obviously with harpre and not the sister (laughs) how did that work yeah it was probably it was a bit more it was probably a bit more dramatic on the tv than it was in reality um she was involved in the business. He hadn't met her, but I think he, you know, he trusted Harper and, you know, could see that the business was doing successfully. So, you know, her sister is still involved, still a director. And, you know, in some ways you've got two entrepreneurs for the price of one, but 
he he trusted Harpery and her her judgment. And I think you know, whether Harps would have sort of walked away if he said he didn't want the sister, then I I don't know. But why would he say he didn't want her? You know, she's an asset to the business, and you know, now working with them both, I can see they're both integral to the running of the business, integral to the success of the business. And and he figured that out quicker than I did. So it was never really an issue. But I think it, it was good TV, good drama, um, and never as much of a big deal as the media made out. Is it, it actually true that the, the, the two finalists and even like the producers don't know the winner until like a day before? Because I've, I've, I've read or I've heard that they, they filmed two scenarios where both both could win, both get fired. How does that work? The winner finds out, I mean, sometimes a few hours oh. before. It's, it's completely secret. Um, and, yeah, I mean, it, it, it sort of varies from year to year. Sometimes it's a couple of days before. But, you know, this year it, they found out, I mean, I don't know, three, four hours before. Um, so, yeah, it's, you know, you want to keep the final secret and don't want anyone to know. So that's the best do you reckon way to Lord, do it. Do you reckon Lord, Lord Sugar would know, wouldn't he? Would, would he make a decision when it was filmed? Or like a week before or something like that? I, I think it changes from candidate to candidate. Um, so like some years he figures it out quite early. Other years he's completely torn. Um and I think he always holds back his decision to the end in case he changes his, his mind. Or, But I think it's like, like anything. Sometimes, you know, you can't... The, the process is the process. So, yeah, he's not paying any attention really to their business plans or anything like that up until the stage where it gets to the last five or so and the interview stage. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, look, sometimes I guess it's like, if you were interviewing people for for a job, sometimes you sort of get a gut feeling five minutes, they're the one. Other times you're sort of lying awake at night wrestling between two or three people that you like them all and they've all got different attributes and qualities and downsides. So, yeah, it does depend from from year to year. Yeah, fair enough. Awesome. But you never actually make the decision right. until awesome. right at the end. Right. So earlier today, I put out um, a question and answer poll. Um, we'll, we'll finish with this. Some like quick fire uh, questions that people have asked. Um, the first one sure. is: I'm a 16 year old looking to start a business. Um, what advice would you give? I would find something that you're passionate about. You know a little bit about and you enjoy. Um, you know, there's no point saying, I want to start a car manufacturing business or an airline. You know, be realistic. But, you know, look at your passions, your interests. I think, you know, the amazing thing that's happening at the moment is it's, anyone can start a business and make money relatively easy. It doesn't have to be an agency world like like we're in. You know, look at sort of, you know, my my eldest son, who's 17, you know, he's got friends that are making hundreds of thousands of pounds already, just like selling luxury designer gear or hard to get trainers. And that's their passion. You know, they grew up 
wearing the latest Air Jordans or whatever it might be, Off-White, Supreme, and now they've taken that passion and they've used it to, to make a business. If you love photography, then think of something you could do along the lines of photography. If you love making videos, think of something in videography. But find something you enjoy. I think that really helps and try and turn your passion into a business or at least be aware of what your strengths and weaknesses are. So if you're a great writer, look at businesses that have sort of written skills at their core. If you're great at speaking, love presenting, you know, look at industries that you, know, you could use that strength. There's no point. Yeah, I was always terrible at maths. I'd like to think I'm a little bit better now, but I was never going to do anything that required maths to be the core focus because I hated it and I wasn't very good at it. English, art, media was always my thing. And that's what I, so that, I mean, that would be sort of loose. Cool. The next one is, um, my mum wants me to go to university, but I don't want to go. Do you, he's basically asking, do you think he should say no? <laughs> do you think he should go uni? Do you know what? It's a, such a hard question to answer because, you know, whilst it's right for some people, it's not for others. Again, with my son, who's going to university next year, we had the same discussion. And what I said to him, I mean, you, you take this advice with a pinch of salt, is like, don't think about it as just working and studying for another three years. You have the best time of your life. You know, you'll move out of home, you'll meet a whole new group of people, you'll live in a different city. Yes, there's a bit of work, but I mean, I had the most incredible time at university and that wasn't because of my degree. It was because of all the friends I made, all the parties I was going to. You know, you have your whole life to work. So, you know, if you're 17, 18 and you're thinking you just want to work, starting at 21, 22 isn't going to make a huge amount of difference. So if you want to do it, then do it. But if you don't, don't. You know, equally, I've got friends and my son has got friends now that just want to go out and work. They're not interested. Um, and that's fine too. So you can't do it just for your mum. You know, if my son had said to me, I really don't want to do it, I wouldn't have pushed him. It's, it's got to be right for you. Um, and I think, you know, look, getting a degree does help you get your foot in the door. But probably the most important thing is building experience, doing work experience, on-the-job learning. There's also lots of other routes you could do now, apprenticeships, um, different ways, different schemes, different ways of getting into employment. But do what, what you want to do. Don't listen too much to your mum. It's got to be what's, what's right A couple for you. more. Um, are the apprentice candidates banned from – explicit word, we'll go having flings. We'll say that. Are they banned from having flings? That, because that, that made um, a lot of newspapers, actually. Um, there is a sort of a rule book, which, to be honest, I've never read or seen that sort of they get when they enter the house. Um, and I, I, I think they're encouraged not to, is my take. But the truth of it is I don't know whether it's explicit or not explicit i'm surprised they would have any time to really (laughs) um two more are lord sugar and piers morgan's morgan friends they are at the moment yeah they had a big fallout a couple of years ago over the pandemic 
and they're both quite stubborn and they both thought they were right the reality is it was the sort of who was right and wrong was probably somewhere in the middle um and then i think they realized after about a year year and a half of not speaking that they actually really like each other and had fun and enjoyed each other's company and they met kissed and made up so they're, yeah they're, they're very together. similar aren't they they are they 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 are um what remind me what the argument was about what what side was which It was to do with COVID and Piers was, you know, in the early stages of the pandemic, very, very worried about it, was really sort of bashing the government and telling everyone to take it super seriously. Lord Sugar felt he was sort of scaremongering and doing it for his own personal ratings and profile. And, you know, they both, probably both right and both wrong. The truth was somewhere in the middle, but they fell out over that. And I think it's sort of indicative of a very strange time we all went through. You know, if you remember, go back to like March, April 2020, the world was like, we'd never seen it before. And it was scary and it was unknown and it was unprecedented. So it was sort of reflective of that time. And they both just had real opposing views on it. Um, and then I think over time, you know, realised that the truth was somewhere in the middle. Nice. I can't wait for their like next Twitter spat, which gets super high engagement and promotes both their personal brands. But um, final question: This is asked every every time, by the way. Do you like chicken nuggets? Final one. Yeah, I love chicken nuggets. I quite easily work my way through chicken nuggets in one go. <laughs> No, love that. Well, and Andrew, thanks very much for um, coming on, mate. It's been a very insightful podcast, very insightful conversation. And yeah, I really appreciate it. Pleasure. No problem at all. Awesome. Take care.